0: Following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast 1. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Feel that way every single day when you work with a Trunk Club personal stylist. Meet your stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T R U N K C L U B.com.
1: I was watching on my computer at my desk in Seattle, Steve Jobs demo at the WWDC, the Apple Developer Conference. Uh, I was watching that presentation live, and he said, we're going to open up the iPhone ecosystem to third-party app developers. And I stood up for my computer, and I ran 15 feet to my co-founder, to Lloyd Frank's desk, and said, this is going to change the company. We have to pivot the whole company towards mobile, because if there are going to be third-party apps on the iPhone, that's going to change the company forever. And literally within the week, we had pivoted the company towards mobile
2: Hey, everybody. It's Laurel, executive producer for Forbes Podcasts. Today, we welcome Spencer Raskoff to the Forbes interview. He's the CEO of Zillow Group, who recently launched Office Hours, a show currently on the Podcast One Network. Check it out.
0: Spencer, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: So fill me in real quick. What is the state of the union of Zillow? What's happening? What's exciting? What are you guys really jamming on now?
1: Um, you know, what we're focused on is trying to take the company to the next level, so firstly, in terms of scale. So we're about 3,500 employees, about 10 years old, and we're entering this next phase of the company's growth. And what's driving that is changing consumer expectations. So think about the different services that you use in your life. You've become accustomed to to your smartphone being your remote control of your life. Yep. You press a button and magic happens. You press a button, food arrives. You press a button, a car arrives. You press a button, you know, photos get edited. Um, and consumer expectations are really magical on the smartphone, and that is applying to real estate as well. So what we're trying to do with Zillow Group, is, across all of our brands, is tap into that consumer expectation of magic. And we haven't really done that yet, to be honest. Um, the first 10 years have been great and we're successful, but uh, shopping for a home today isn't all that different than it was five or 10 years ago. No, impress- so- yeah,
0: and pressing a button and ordering a-, ordering a burrito is a little different than pressing a button and buying a house.
1: It is. So, you know, th- therein lies the challenge, right? Uh it's it's not as simple uh in, in real estate, but um, you know, but that's what gets us up in the morning and, and running into the office. So, uh, you know, a couple of examples. I mean we're experimenting, for example, on the sell side with something called instant offers mm-hmm. where you press a button and we get you offers for that home from investor buyers. Um so it's not quite a seamless, you know, one click sale, uh at least not yet, and it might never get there. But it is definitely moving in that direction, and that's what we're innovating on across all of our marketplaces, on the buy side, on the sell side, in mortgages, in rentals, et cetera.
2: And taking a moment to thank our sponsors, Veridesk, Rocket Mortgage, and Zip Recruiter. Right now, you can try Zip Recruiter for free at ziprecruiter.com slash Forbes. You'll hear more about these companies later in the show.
0: I know you're a marketplace, and obviously, you, in the end of the day, the best bet for you guys is people are buying and selling homes thanks to your platform. But in many ways, you're also a technology company. I mean, you're a technology company, but you're also a media company. I'm sure you get a huge amount of users that love just to kind of check out real estate, almost the voyeuristic um, daydreaming aspect of it. Is that that's got to be a giant part of the business?
1: Absolutely. Uh, and certainly on the Zillow brand, that voyeurism is, uh, is a part of the appeal. I mean, see what your house is worth. See what your boss's house is worth. See what your ex-girlfriend's house is worth. You know, that is definitely Im- embedded in the Zillow brand promise. Um, we are a media company. We have 180 million people that use our websites every month wow. and we make money by selling advertising. Uh, most of the advertising is, uh, is very, transactionally directed so it's not interruptive advertising um, instead it's connected with commerce so mm-hmm. somebody wants to go see an apartment then click here to connect with the property manager somebody wants to get a mortgage click here to connect with the lender somebody wants to go see the house click here to get connected with the real estate agent uh, that's advertising but it's not interruptive advertising it's additive advertising
0: i see and inst- and you know if you find a house and you click on a lot of times you have the contact with the realtor the lead if someone actually buys a house and they found it via Zillow, and then you kind of you know it's almost affiliate marketing in a way, do they tr- do you get a hu- is that a huge revenue boost for you guys if you actually someone buys or sells a house thanks to you?
1: Uh, no, at least not un- under today's business model. Under today's business model, um, the way we make money uh, uh, is by selling advertising to individual real estate agents on an auction per zip code. So in 2018, we'll do about $1.3 billion of revenue, mm-hmm. and uh, about 80% of that is individual real estate agents bidding in an auction to show up beside active listings in zip codes. Now, if that real estate agent Bats a thousand and converts every one of those leads into a transaction, or if they bat zero and they do a terrible job on lead conversion, under the current business model, we're charging them the same. Mm-hmm. um So, no, we don't get a piece of the transaction. And now, that having been said, we work really, really hard to have those real estate agents be successful because we figure if they have higher lead conversion and they convert those leads into transactions at a higher rate, they're going to turn around and bid more for those impressions. Hmm. So we provide software tools and training and education and, and virtual assistance to these real estate agents so that they are more likely to turn those, those leads into transactions. But no, we don't make any more money directly if they do.
0: Interesting. And because of that, I, I know you've done a lot of acquisitions and expansions over the last you know 10 years but does kind of does your business ebb and flow with kind of cycles in housing and the economy or because everyone always you know people always need a place to live people always love looking at houses for you know any reason is it pretty constant is it or is it kind of is there some interesting indicators that kind of show how your traffic goes and the interest goes
1: so it's it's hard to say. We actually don't entirely know what how exposed we are to cyclicality. Uh, we know that through 2008, when we were only a two-year-old company, uh, through that housing recession, we grew incredibly well. Uh, but it was off a much smaller base. We were a smaller company. Uh, we hypothesize that in a down housing climate, real estate advertising generally pulls back from the unmeasurable, mm-hmm. unscalable channels like print and and um, direct mail, um, outdoor advertising, and generally online advertising gets more market share uh, during those recessions. But you know we don't know. We it's been this has been an uphousing market for ten years, so uh, kind of hard to say.
0: Awesome. I want to talk a little bit about how you know the creation of Zillow, but also I want to go back to your background because you've kind of had three different lives in your short career. <laughs> um, you were a uh, hardcore iBanker and then you were uh, an entrepreneur, I guess, in the first, uh, the web version with, you know, you st- helped launch Hotwire and then you went from travel to real estate. And I just love to hear a little bit about um, those jumps because they're all big jumps and very interesting and you've seen a lot of change in the last, you know, 20 so years.
1: Yeah, so uh, I'll give you the brief the brief history. So I did two years in investment banking on, on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs and then that Transitioned pretty seamlessly into private equity, um, and it, it wasn't for me. I, I wasn't passionate about financial engineering. I wasn't passionate about. You weren't.
0: Everyone uh, is. I thought.
1: <laughs> maybe some of your listeners are, and and you know the world needs people like that. I'm just not one of them. Um, so uh, for me, investment banking and private equity was um, it just wasn't something that I could get super fired up about. I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. And in 1999, I helped start a company called Hotwire, as you point out, during the first internet boom. In San Francisco and Hotwire was an online travel company and um, uh, we had our ups and our downs and certainly through 9-11 and the the economic recession and the travel recession that happened after September 11, 2001, uh, we had a pretty tough time but eventually we turned the company around and by 2003, we sold it to Expedia. Um, I moved to Seattle and I was an executive at Expedia for a year or two so those were my online travel years from Mm -hmm. founding Hotwire and the sale and then Expedia. And then, uh, the team at Expedia and I wanted to try it again. And in 2005, we all left Expedia together, um, about 10 or 15 people, uh, in the beginning that left Zillow, sorry, left Expedia to help start Zillow in 2005 or 2006. And it's been a great journey the last 12 years or 13 years at Zillow Group. And I'm excited for what comes next.
0: Wow, I don't want to. F- I don't want to see what's next because every time you jump into something, it sounds like the industry um, crumbles. So I'm, uh, but I'm, am a little nervous to your next pick. Don't go into journalism, okay?
1: <laughs> well, we're all journalists now, we're right? right there, that? yes. With podcasting and, and social media allows everyone to be a journalist. So. How'd you um,
0: make? Yeah, you know, how'd you make the jump from you know from iBanking and private equity? And I, I have a a lighter Wall Street background, but those aren't creative entrepreneurial jobs. How'd you go from that to starting this big travel site?
1: Uh, so there was a lot of luck involved, as as there frequently is. Um, when I was at TPG uh, in private equity, a Texas Pacific Group, um, we were looking at ways to leverage our portfolio companies into the internet, and one of TPG's foundational investment sectors was the travel industry. And so when I was at TPG, we had bought Continental Airlines out of bankruptcy, Mm -hmm. America West Airlines out of bankruptcy, and we had sold a lot of our Continental stake to Northwest Airlines. So we effectively controlled three U.S. airlines and Ryanair, which is sort of the Southwest Airlines of Europe, um, one of the largest carriers in Europe. And so um, when I was at TPG, we started thinking about what can we do with these relationships and these stakes in these airlines. And we decided to try to create an airline consortium company to compete with Priceline, which at the time was the leading discount travel company. Mm. And so I spent about six months getting six airlines together and writing the business plan and creating the founding documents that TPG invested in to create what will become Hotwire. And at the end of that process, which I was staffed on as a Associate at this private equity firm, um, I asked the firm if I could leave to help create the company, and so the the partner and I both left TPG uh, to actually try to get Hotwire uh-huh. off the ground, and and so that's how that's how I got there. It wasn't uh, two kids in a garage; it was uh, kind of incubated within this private equity firm.
0: Interesting. And did TPG keep most of the ownership of Hotwire?
1: They did. Um I mean the six airlines uh received a lot of equity and employees got some equity but it, TPG was the main sponsor and and the financial backer and ultimately had a really successful exit when we sold the company to Expedia for about 700 million.
0: Well, wow. and how did you guys weather and you you went you had to face a huge obstacle. Not only did you have the, kind of the collapse of the dot com bubble but also 9/11 and you know thinking back that just put a freeze on all travel and vacations and you know that, that you guys had like a double whammy there.
1: We did. What, it was What uh,
0: was the key? how did you guys get through it?
1: Yeah, I mean it's um I'm not sure. And even sitting here now as I think about it. I mean, our the company was about 2 years old, um maybe maybe even less at the time that that 911 happened. Um and, you know, just to remind everybody what a disastrous time it was. Um, you know, firstly, uh planes were grounded for about 10 days tens of thousands of our customers were stranded all around the world uh, that we had to figure out how to reaccommodate. Mm-hmm. Um, there, it, there was a huge amount of, of misinformation and just lack of information, so people didn't feel safe to travel. Um, I had been at the Millennium Hilton uh, the day before, and the Millennium Hilton was was crushed under mm-hmm. one of the towers, um, and had been on one of those same flights from New York to San Francisco just the day before. So, I mean, I was obviously blessed, um, but had been. Very close to the situation, and I actually lost a close friend in one of the planes. So it was a it was a very difficult time for the company. Yeah, and and it sounds
0: like what, and you're, and you're, like many and myself, millions yourself. Yeah, uh,
1: absolutely, absolutely. And you know, and actually, a little known fact: we had, believe it or not, sold tickets to some of the hijackers, not the September 11th flights, but the September 10th flights from Bangor, Maine, to Boston Logan, oh. um, that put that. That team in place for the Logan departure, um, and so we had the NSA and the FBI all over, you know, all over the company. Even the day after, by September, the afternoon of September 11th and September 12th, wanting to know, uh, to learn what they could from credit card records, et cetera, and that cast a a, a very weird shade over the company mm. and and this you know sense of, of, of guilt and culpability among the employees that the, the few employees that knew about it at the time because we kept try to keep it as, as closely guarded as possible um, we ultimately um, had to do a round of layoffs we went from 200 employees to about 150 to try to reduce our cost base mm. to adapt to the to the new reality which was the new reality was that People were very reluctant to travel and to fly. And so for almost a year after 9-11, travel was just decimated. Um, and the team stuck together, and people redoubled their efforts, and everyone worked harder and smarter. And the belt tightening was ended up being a bit of a blessing in disguise because we actually became a more well-run company, mm-hmm. more focused, um, um, more lean, and that was – ultimately what helped contribute to our success just a couple years later. Yeah, so
0: I guess when the recovery happened and people started traveling again, you had this, you know, really tight operation that I'm sure just thrived. We did.
1: Yeah. And one of the other advantages um uh, and and there's some parallels here to the Zillow experience too. One of the advantages was the travel suppliers, airlines, hotels and rental car companies as a result of the travel recession after 9/11, uh, they were pretty desperate for distribution and so they turned to online travel companies like Hotwire and gave us a lot of inventory and great discounts mm-hmm. to try to get their you know, to get their inventory their perishable inventory start moving again and so we undoubtedly benefited in in that sense from that recession
0: wow and then so then you guys sold to a rival Expedia
1: We did yeah so we were getting ready to go public we yeah. had hired Goldman Sachs where my co-founder and I had worked together and we hired Goldman Sachs to take us public and then Expedia made us an offer we couldn't refuse and um, we had always feared that that Big bad Expedia would might compete directly with us in the discount travel space, um, and when the opportunity to sell the company to Expedia arose, <laughs> uh, and and removed that competitive risk of being a standalone probably subscale public company um, with the specter of competing against uh, these giants like Expedia and, and Priceline, uh, we jumped at that opportunity wow. and, and sold the company.
0: And was, that, was Dara running that then? Was it
1: uh, Dara uh, was in New York still at the parent company at ISC. So Dara was instrumental in the transaction. Um, Dara is obviously Dara Shahi, who is now the CEO of Uber yeah. and, and became the CEO of Expedia. Um, uh, so he was instrumental in the deal. Dara and I had actually worked together even before I, when I was still in college, when I was a summer analyst at Allen and Company, the oh. investment bank that Dara worked at before he we went to ISC, so I had known Dara forever, and he was yes, he was instrumental in the deal. Although he was not working at Expedia, he was working at the parent company for Barry Diller at ISC. Um, the uh, the the rest of the cast of characters that were at Expedia are and. Chose, hot, chose to buy hotwire are all now involved at zillow so rich barton was the founder of Expedia and the first ceo and he's obviously my co-founder at zillow and lloyd frank was one of the executives at Expedia, instrumental in buying hotwire eric blatchford was the ceo and eric is on the board of zillow greg Maffei was the chairman of Expedia, and um he's on the board of zillow and so um after we all joined forces at Expedia, then shortly after that we left together to start Zillow. So sort of the best of Hotwire and the best of Expedia helped to create Zillow.
0: I don't know Spencer sounds a little ancestral between the Goldman Sachs stuff <laughs> and the uh, Allen and Co. and Expedia. I don't I, this, I think there's a conspiracy going on here
1: and <laughs> um, it is a small world for sure
0: so you so you sold the company, I'm sure you got a nice payday, went to work for the parent company. And then, when you decided to leave Expedia, did you take some time off? Did you, or did you you're thinking about this real estate move and jump right into it? How, how did that that leap happen?
1: Uh, I did not take any time off. I haven't taken any time off since uh, pretty much the, <laughs> the day I started work uh, right after college when I was twenty one. So it's been 20, uh, 22 years of, of 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 nonstop work from job to job. Um, on, what happened hot was you
0: book a vacation. (laughs)
1: That sounds pretty good right about now. Um, What happened um, was uh, I was at Expedia, and my wife pointed out to me something that um, was pretty obvious, which is I was unhappy. Um, I'd been there for about a year, and I felt stifled creatively. I felt like it wasn't an entrepreneurial enough environment for me. I felt like the company wasn't moving fast enough, and She held up a mirror to me so that I realized that. And so at that point, I started talking with some other people, that, with Rich and Lloyd Frank, who had already left Expedia and joined them. And we started kicking around ideas, different business ideas, including online real estate. And at that point, David Bytel, who's the CTO of Zillow and was the CTO of Expedia, Stan Humphries, who was the head of analytics at Expedia and is now head of insights at Zillow Group, et cetera. We all, uh, and Kristen Acker and, and many others, all sort of started leaving Expedia in droves to, to help start Zillow.
2: And we'll be right back after this quick break. Hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate. In fact, 80 percent of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sites trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, listeners to the Forbes Interview Podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to com slash Forbes. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. And one more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And Traditional static offices are a thing of the past. Today, companies and employees want an active workspace. Veridesk helps people reimagine their office design. Being more active at work, like standing more and sitting less, can help improve your health by boosting energy and productivity. Veridesk active workspace solutions make it easy to encourage more movement in a day. The new ProDesk 60 electric standing desk is the cornerstone of the active office. It's designed with commercial-grade materials, Table at any height and fully assembled in under five minutes. Plus, all Veradesk products are made to last. They're also simple to set up and move or reconfigure as businesses change and grow. Check out Veradesk products, including the new Pro Desk 60 Electric, risk-free for 30 days with free shipping and free returns. Learn more at veradesk.com/forbes. That's v-a-r-i-desk.com/slash. Forbes.
0: One thing that shocks me was Zillow is just the magnitude of data. There's so many millions of parts. Whether you can type in any zip code, and not only do you get you know the maps and you get the aerial views, but you get the estimates and the. It's just, I mean, it must be trillions of data points floating around. Like, how do you stop? Like when you're going to start and you're going to kind of create this library of real estate and prices and everything? Like, how do you even start that project?
1: <laughs> well, what we when we started uh, kicking around ideas in real estate, we immediately noticed that the consumer was disadvantaged in real estate, that there was all this information, tons and tons of data and information in real estate, but it generally was not available for consumers. It was locked up in county courthouses and industry-only databases, where only professionals, real estate agents, real estate brokers, were allowed to access it. And so the idea early on was to try to set that information free, to Remedy information asymmetry between consumers and professionals. And um, now, very importantly, though, we did not intend and do not intend and have not cut out real estate agents from the transaction. On the contrary, we, our whole business model is about connecting consumers yeah. with real estate professionals. But what we are trying to do is to put them on a level playing field. And in this case, we're actually not really like Expedia because, of course, Expedia put travel agents out of business. We're much more like a WebMD or a Yahoo Health, where it, which, which is to say that you, know, you might go to WebMD to research a, a, an ailment, uh, maybe try to self-diagnose. And then at that point, you go to a doctor, right? and the doctor helps you interpret all the stuff you see on the Internet and that is very much how zillow works we've got all this great information and and then we connect you with a real estate professional and the the way that we the, the 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 way we started was by trying to answer one of the most fundamental questions about real estate and we said to ourselves what is the question people always ask about real estate and the the, the answer that most real estate sites would say is what's for sale mm-hmm. and in 2005 when we were starting the company we said sure what's for sale is important but You know, there are places where you can find out what's for sale. What's even more important is what's it worth. And what's fun about the question of what's it worth is it applies not just to homes for sale but to all homes. And so it has more universal appeal than what's for sale. And so we decided to try to figure out what every home in the country was worth and put a price on every rooftop. And, I mean, I still remember being in our office in downtown Seattle, and we were looking out a window, um, brainstorming ideas about real estate, and we were looking at the Queen Anne neighborhood of Seattle. Queen Anne is a very quaint neighborhood with a lot of Victorian homes, and um, up on a hillside. And you can see all these kind of tiny houses off in the distance, and uh, we said, wow, can you imagine if there was... a?" Dollar sign on top of each and every one of those homes. And that was the idea for this estimate. And at that point, we called Stan Humphreys, who was still running analytics at Expedia, and we said, Stan, we want to figure out what every home in the country is worth. And he said, Well, I don't know anything about real estate. And we said, This is not a real estate question. It's a math problem. And, you know, you're pretty good at math. (laughs) We will go out and get data on all these homes from counties and from other data providers, and let's try to build algorithms that can figure out what all these homes are worth. And of course, at the time, nobody knew, nobody used the term artificial intelligence or machine learning or, uh, you know, any of these um, buzzwords that now are are commonplace, but that's exactly what we were using all the way back in ancient times of 2005, 2006, to try to figure out what homes were worth.
0: And what are the price points? I mean, do you look at, obviously, comparable sales? Do you look at tax abatements or, I'm sorry, tax... uh Records, where they call them when they they uh adjust the the value and everything what's were what the inputs that you could build on
1: so all of the above um the the short version of how the estimates are calculated is there is a meta model um which is at the census tract level which is a couple neighborhood blocks and what the meta model does is it decides the allocation of about 50 sub models so for example there might be a sub model that just does simple dollars per square foot on this house another might um look at uh, tax assessment um, another might look at proximity to an arterial or um uh dollars per square foot per uh, school rating. So um, it, you know, it relies heavily on the ratings of the schools in that neighborhood. And and so imagine these 50 sub-models that are all using a different flavor of analysis to figure out what the home is worth. And that meta-model says, what is the right weighting of each of those sub-models going back over the last 10 years, such that if the weighting were, say, 2%, 2%, eighty. percent Two percent, zero percent, four percent, etc., How accurate would we be on every home that sold over the last ten years? And so that meta model is constantly changing. It's using machine learning mm-hmm. to figure it out, and and always getting more accurate. And so to give you a sense of accuracy, when we started twelve years ago, we had about a fourteen percent error rate, and today we have about a four percent error rate.
0: Meaning that your uh, price is off the where the sale went, like off exactly.
1: The, yeah. Every time a home sells. Um, we uh, we're off by about four percent today, which is much much more accurate than when we started. Were you
0: guys nervous when you first turned on that feature? Like, okay, we're gonna like we're gonna like light up the the nation.
1: Yes, I mean when we when we lit up the nation, I think it was February of two thousand six. Um, we were extremely nervous. We had no idea whether people would whether this feature would resonate with people. Um, it actually was only live in half the country. We launched with about fifty million homes. Today we have a hundred million homes, um, and the website went down within a couple of hours. We had a million people within the first couple of hours. Um, I think it was like 2 million people the first day. And I think even to this day, 12 years later, even in the age of Snapchat and Instagram and and all these other services that have grown to be so massive, I don't think anybody, any website, any service, any mobile app has had a million users on day one. And I'm not sure anybody will ever have a million users on day one again. Um, The reason that we took off like a rocket ship right out of the gate was it was so shocking and so voyeuristic um and fun and entertaining to zillow your christmas list um you know to go and see what everybody you know's house is worth and what everyone paid for it um and um and that's that we got off to a very quick start as a result yeah of that.
0: i'm sure the, i'm sure the i'm sure the media helped big time too I, I that seems i can just imagine all the stories that came out of that
1: Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, we had uh, a Walt Mossberg article in Wall Street Journal that broke the story that morning, and then the uh, the floodgates of every media outlet, including, of course, Forbes, um, uh, <laughs> that um, you know that that added fuel to the fire. Now we had no business model at the time. Um, we had a lot of traffic, and it wasn't until a couple of years later that we actually hit upon a business model. And that business model was putting real estate agents ads for themselves mm-hmm. next to active listings. So actually, people don't remember this, but we didn't even have listings of homes for sale for the first two years. So It was that's, just searching yes, pricing. It was just, exactly. It was just what do people pay for their home and what is the Zestimate for the home. It wasn't until two years later, once we were already one of the top real estate sites in the country, that we then went and added listings from brokerages mm-hmm. and from MLSs. Um, and then even after that, that we... Sort of stumbled upon a business model uh, around this connecting consumers with real estate agents.
0: And you mentioned before, you know, you, you kicked it off with 50 million homes, just a ton, a ton of information, and it, the way it was organized, it was county by county. Um, were a lot of these counties were they digitized, or were you sending off uh, interns to go to the, the the clerk's office and get the get the piece of paper and scan it in? And how how was that giant scrape done?
1: Um, we were buying all this data from different third parties. So you know when you know how when you move, you get all sorts of random pieces of junk mail from phone companies and moving companies oh, yeah. and credit card companies? Um, what's happening there is uh, your moving data that's in the public record in counties is being uh, digitally entered by a company and then resold to others. And um, we went and acquired all this data, sometimes directly from counties, but usually through resellers. And for the first time ever, made it publicly available to consumers. And then, of course, we built our Zestimate algorithms on top of it. Now, t- fast forward to today, we actually get most of this data ourselves directly, um, where we are actually the ones, as you suggest, manually keying it in. So over time, we have um, sort of weaned ourselves off of third-party intermediaries that were the ones aggregating that data, and now we do most of it
0: ourselves. How do you get all the interior pictures?
1: Uh, interior pictures come from listing agents and brokerages or sellers. Um, and so when a home's for sale, they post them. And then when the home goes off market, uh, sometimes those pictures stay up unless a homeowner asks, and sometimes they come down. And then, of course, we've got aerial photography and, and Google Street View and satellite imagery. So the product is so much more evolved. And what has made us successful and what I certainly couldn't predict in 2006 when we started the company was mobile. Yeah. So it wasn't until the smartphone became mainstream in 2010, 2011, that Zillow really started to take off. And, of course, that's because real estate is the ultimate untethered activity. I mean, when you When you want access to real estate information is precisely when you are driving around a neighborhood and looking at houses. It's not when you're tethered to your computer. And so we were one of the – I mean mobile was just a huge accelerant to our business.
2: And we'll be right back after this quick break. Support for the Forbes interview podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask why. Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process. It gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply. Understand fully. Mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com Forbes. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLS NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. When you're wearing
0: the right outfit, it feels good. Like hitting all green lights good, finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at TrunkClub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B dot do you remember when that moment was? Was it with the Was it with the iPhone? And you guys got together like, "Wow, this is yeah. like the future." Or it, 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 before I do that? remember,
1: I do remember. It was a, it was a moment I will I will never forget. I was uh, I mean, the iPhone had been out. There was, of course, the iPod, and then the iPhone had been out for mm-hmm. about a year. Uh, but there were, as you might remember, there were no apps on no. the iPhone, or at least there were only Apple apps, right? So there was music, of course, uh, because it had be- been an iPod, um, and there was a phone, and there was a calculator, and there was mail, uh, and there was weather, but there were no third-party apps. And so I was watching on my computer at my desk in Seattle Steve Jobs' demo at the WWDC, the mm-hmm. Apple Developer Conference, Uh, I was watching that presentation live and he said we're going to open up the iPhone ecosystem to third party app developers and I stood up from my computer and I ran 15 feet to my co-founder to Lloyd Frank's desk and said this is going to change the company, we have to pivot the whole company towards mobile because if there are going to be third party apps on the iPhone that's going to change the company forever and literally within the week we had pivoted the company towards mobile, basically stopped all desktop development, um, redeployed all resources towards mobile web and mobile app development, wow. and today about 80% of our usage is now on mobile, only about 20% on desktop, and that was the moment that everything changed. And when the iPad came out a couple years later, because we, had we Zillow, had become so successful on the iPhone, Apple actually asked us to develop an iPad app in advance of that Demo and when Steve Jobs demoed the first iPad, he actually demoed the Zillow on the iPad, which was just wow. an incredible moment. i was gonna say it's gonna be company. full,
0: gotta be full circle from watching it uh, on your watching the live stream a couple of years yes. ago to being the, <laughs> the poster child. That's uh, pretty wild. Absolutely. In terms Absolutely. of tech, are you? I mean, there's been a lot of. We're not there yet, obviously, but there's a lot of buzz on you know augmented reality, virtual reality, and it seems like if someone wants to tour a house virtually, that could be a good. Um, you know, a, a pretty interesting tool and actually a tool that actually makes sense because so much of this stuff is just cramming AR on things that don't need it. Um, is that a, a possibility? Is that too much work? Is that hype? It's or is No, it, it's you know, happening. Yeah. It's
1: happening on, well, let me be specific. So on Zillow in a couple cities now, we have live what we call 3D homes, which is the, the homeowner or the seller can use a, an iPhone app and take a couple dedicated pictures of, of the home with their regular iPhone, and then we stitch those photos together and create dynamic panos. So think Google, Google Street View, where you can click and you kind of you know zoom in and yeah. then pan around. Think Google Street View, but inside the home from still photos taking on an iPhone, Uh, It's quite amazing, and no dedicated hardware is required. It can just be done with an iPhone, and then we do all the the machine learning to connect all the photos together, and that is coming. So we've made the bet that virtual reality for real estate will not – Require dedicated headsets like Oculus or, or, you know, HoloLens or anything else. um, Dedicated, either dedicated hardware to view or dedicated hardware to shoot. Like Matterport, which is uh, a company that has dedicated hardware to shoot Mm -hmm. 3D imagery, and instead it'll be done, it'll be created and consumed on regular smartphones. Um, and that was a that was a very difficult technology feat for us to pull off, um, and we haven't launched it nationwide yet. Hopefully, later this year it'll go out more broadly, but it's up in a couple cities.
0: Is that the idea that so it's a kind of a simple uh, frictionless tool that um, you know realtors or people that are getting towards the house can put up without you know sending crews in and making exactly cheap- interesting. Exactly. Um, going exactly. from technology, I want to, I, mean, I want to talk for a second about acquisitions because you guys made some very interesting um, M&A deals. You know, Truly, it was huge. Um, one close to my heart as a New Yorker, Street Easy, which I think I found two yeah. or three apartments on in the past. And you guys have some good subway ads going right now. Um, th- that's been a, <laughs> a big you. one for us New Yorkers. Like, What's been the strategy on that? In general. yeah
1: so I mean we've done 15 acquisitions and and Street Easy is certainly one of my favorite um, I stalked the street Easy founder um, for years um, I think I called him uh, every month for probably eight years say asking to buy their company uh, until Street Easy finally sold to Zilla group a couple years ago and um, it's really grown since we acquired it as you mentioned we're doing a lot of advertising and the products' gotten a lot better but um street Easy is amazing in New York City um, the Strategies for the acquisitions have there been a, they fall into basically two categories. One is grow consumer audience across multiple brands. Mm-hmm. Um and so Street Easy is an obvious example, but we also acquired Hot Pads, which is our rentals brand. Uh we acquired a company called HREO that we then launched as Out East, which is our Hamptons brand, um on Long on Eastern
0: Long Island. Um I wish I could we... use that, but it's out of my way.
1: <laughs> Someday. Well, you know, look there's there's share rentals there. There's lots of, you know, there's it's more approachable. Great. I'll
0: grab I'll grab eighty friends, we'll be all set. <laughs>
1: Uh well Out East is is a lot of fun for some fantasy shopping anyway, even if it's not real. Oh, yeah. Um uh so Hop, Street Easy Naked Apartments, which is one of our other New York City brands that focuses on uh more affordable apartments actually in, in the New York area, including the outer boroughs outside Manhattan, um, et cetera. So we bought a, a couple of brands um and, and then launched realestate.com. dot com. So we, we you know, you and I have been using the word Zillow, but it's it's technically the company I'm the CEO of is Zillow Group, and then there are eight consumer brands that are part of Zillow Group. So, a couple of those have come through acquisition. Mm-hmm. The other big category of acquisitions have been software tools that help real estate professionals be more productive. Uh, so, Dot Loop is a really great example of this. Dot Loop is transaction management for real estate. So, it lets you buy or sell a home and sign for it electronically on your phone. Um, instead, and of eventually... those, instead of all those forms
0: exactly. and contracts and, well.
1: Exactly, all, you, know, all, you know, all those forms that you're signing on the hood of your real estate agent's car—that uh, is, you know, that's a thing of the past. Submitting offers, collaborating on the transaction with the title person, escrow person, the mortgage lender, the buyer, seller, the two real estate agents, etc. All is done inside of Dot Loop. Um, uh, but, uh, anyway, I could go through a, a number of other examples, but there have been a lot of software tools for professionals that we've acquired and then integrated into our product suite mm-hmm. for the purposes of trying to make real estate professionals more successful, so they turn around and then buy more advertising from huh. us.
0: Well, you're such a big data operation. Are there any cool um, housing or living trends that you guys are picking up on? I mean, you always read headlines about you know millennials are never going to buy a house, and they're all moving to the city, and <laughs> then you hear read the opposite the next day, and all this yeah. stuff about you know people renting out tents in Brooklyn for 2000 bucks a month and all that kind of thing like what's in tiny houses you know there's all these things that people love to write about and fake trends what are you seeing on the ground
1: uh, so millennials are They do want to buy houses. They're just doing it later. They're doing everything later. They're getting married later. They're buying a house later. They're having children later. Um, And so fortunately for real estate watchers, there's nothing fundamental about this generation that's coming up that is going to change the long-term home ownership rate, at least according to our research. Uh, But it is pushing everything out by a couple of years. Um, The other thing that's happening is because they're buying homes later – they're buying nicer homes. So the you know, the the normal kind of historically speaking, first time home of of, of being kind of a, a sort of modest starter home is basically being skipped. People are renting during that life stage, and then when they get ready to buy, they're buying what traditionally would have been somebody's second or third home. Hmm. Um, and that has pretty big implications for home builders. So as a result, home builders are building Nicer homes because the the land is the same cost the um, the labor and materials are the same cost and so they're building five six seven hundred thousand dollars homes not one or two hundred thousand dollars homes. As a result, there's very 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 little inventory at the lower end of the market and that's where buyers have to really fight to get their offer accepted, make Mm -hmm. five ten fifteen offers uh, because there's just so little inventory at that end of the market.
0: And what's happening to those, you said, like those two, those starter homes, so to speak, that were orig- They're being kind of hopscotched over. Are those being, um, are they staying as is? Are they being bought and being torn down for upgrades for that, to help that you know, inventory?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the fix and flip side of the business is on fire right now in really every major market. Um, uh, and it's because interest rates are really low and because there's limited inventory. The whole story of what's happening with housing right now is limited inventory because of the 2008 recession. Mm -hmm. So going into the 2008 recession, home builders were building, gosh, I think almost a million homes a a year. And then from 08, 09, 2010, that dropped to about 100, 200, 300,000. So take that over a couple years, and we're missing a couple million homes from the housing stock that just don't exist. They they should have been built after the recession and they weren't. And um, so there's just really limited inventory everywhere, and that's what's driven home price appreciation. And as a result, today in 2018, home values are higher than they were at the 2007 peak. In almost every city in the country, we're Hmm. past peak value. So some people sometimes say, well, does that mean that we're headed for another crash if we're past peak value? Um, We're not forecasting that. And the reason we're not forecasting it is the last bubble or the last peak, I guess, let's call it, in 2007 was driven by easy credit. Yeah, basically 10 million people bought houses that never should have gotten yeah. loans
0: jumbo loans or subprime loans and no yes. no proof of no proof of you're still alive loans
1: exactly a liar loans you know it's like foggamir get a loan i mean that was it was easy credit from 2000 to 2007 10 million people got mortgages they shouldn't and then guess what happened 10 million people got foreclosed upon during the recession and so now during this run up to the same value um it's not built on this foundation of sand and easy credit it's uh, it, the run-up is built on limited inventory, so it's much st- a stronger fundamental base for this housing recovery. And, and as a result, we don't forecast a, a decline. We do forecast a slowing. So I think, if I remember correctly, the last twelve months home values are up about seven percent year over year. Mm-hmm. And I think we're forecasting four to five percent appreciation over the next twelve months. So it's it's slowing, but it's still increasing.
0: I've been renting in Manhattan for fifteen years, man. I need to slow down. I need I need another. <laughs>
1: Um, well, it's funny, you know, the, the buy rent question is something that, that is, is really fascinating. And, and New York City has one of the longest what we call break-even horizons, meaning that if you want to understand whether you should buy or rent a house, the first question you should ask yourself, or an apartment for that matter, first question you should ask is how long am I going to be there?
0: Yeah. And
1: people sort of understand this, right? If I told you you were only going to be in the apartment for a month, you would never buy it. And if I told you you were going to be there for 100 years, you would never rent it. Now, so somewhere between a month and a hundred years, those two lines cross over, and it makes sense to buy not rent. And the question is, well, what's the crossover? And every market is different. That that break-even horizon uh, is particularly long in Manhattan. It's about five years, and that's because while rents are really high,
0: I thought you say like seventy-five years.
1: <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you've been renting for 15, so that's a little longer than break-even horizon. So, if you had known 15 years ago that you were going to rent for 15 years, you probably would have been, or you were going to be there in the same unit. I don't know if you've been renting the same place or not, but you would have been better off to buy if you could have at the time. But, um, but um, you know, people have to keep that in mind. I think there is. Generally speaking, this rule of thumb of "oh, you're throwing money away if you rent" that is incorrect. No. It really depends on the particulars, and most importantly,
0: how long you're going to be there. In New York, it should be seven years after you have kids. That should be the breaking point. <laughs> that changes the whole thing. Yep, um, sure. well, this is great Spencer. I really appreciate it. Um, anything else like you're excited about in, in the coming year? Like, what what do you have on tap? I know you're trying to scale and grow. And is there any kind of new features, new products you're really like psyched to roll out?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're doing a lot of innovation in rentals. We think that um, rentals is an industry where rental shopping for decades has been the, um, you know, the it has belonged to Craigslist, <laughs> and uh, we think there's a lot more innovation that can be brought to bear on rental shopping, and so we're building out a lot of features that help property managers and renters have a much more seamless and automated experience. Press a button, Mm -hmm. have magic happen. So we're building, and in some markets have already launched, um, automated showings, automated applications, digital leases, digital payments. Uh, These are all things that consumers expect because of how digitized their life has become through their smartphone in other areas. But it's actually still pretty painful to pay your rent. It's oh, yeah. still pretty painful to apply to 20 buildings. It's it, it, On the other side, on the landlord side, it's super painful to to deal with tenants and tenant applications. And so all of that will become digitized so that someday booking a rental will feel a lot like booking a hotel on Expedia, for oh. example. Um, and so that's a big area of focus of ours for in terms of innovation.
0: It's exciting. Well, thanks for the time, Spencer. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me.
0: That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a question or comment, please reach us at interview at podcastone.com. Don't miss the debut episode of The Producer's Guide with Todd Garner and his very first guest, Adam Sandler.
1: I was shooting little Nicky and my father came to the set. He yeah, had got this new Krispy Kreme donut. And then I'm eating like two or three and talking to him and he's like, how many are you going to have? I said, that's it. And he's
0: like, you do that every day? Download new episodes of The Producer's Guide with Todd Garner every Thursday on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details U.S. only. I'm Ed Donahue.